Our scripture today is from Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, making our way through some of the story of the book of Acts. And as we just sang, we know that the spirit who inspired the writers uh, to write these words also works in our hearts as we hear uh, these words. So Acts chapter 4. Uh, In chapter 3, Peter and John had performed a miracle. The people were amazed. They were preaching to the people. And then we uh, take this up. Uh, Chapter 4 begins at that point. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Well, it happened. The true North, strong and free, took it to the champions. My Facebook was lit up by my Canadian friend's excitement. I think it was the first time in history that more Canadians were interested in NBA basketball than in NHL hockey. Yeah, the Golden State Warriors went down to the Toronto Raptors. What what did you expect? I mean, you thought maybe the champion pedigree would make them impervious to assault from an upstart team? Maybe the high priests and ruling elite had a similar mindset. They figured they'd done a number on Jesus, so maybe his disciples would just roll over and give up. They tried their hardest to put a stop to the disciples. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What the religious authorities didn't count on was the power of the Holy Spirit unleashed in the disciples. It's ironic, really. 
Religion was an obstacle to the spread of God's good news. God's work of the Spirit met resistance. But who expected the people known for their religious fervor to lead the resistance? The apostles upset the temple folk. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Chapter 3 tells the first part of the story. Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray. They came across a middle-aged man, lame from birth, begging at the temple. Peter said to him, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And immediately the man got up, walking. Probably danced a jig and was praising God. And a crowd gathered. The man knew the, the man they knew as lame was walking. And Peter explained to them that it wasn't by the power of his own power, or wasn't because it was under his own steam that he was walking, but it was all because of God's glory. It was because it was it was because of what God had done. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that's completely healed him, as you can all see, said Peter. Here was the good news. The good news is that God was alive and well. That the power of Jesus that so many had witnessed had lived on. God was providing this amazing rescue operation through his chosen Messiah. Salvation was available to all who called on the name of Jesus. The problem is the religious authorities got wind of the commotion. They heard that Peter and John were teaching resurrection. So they grabbed them and they put them in prison. Chapter 4 picks up that story. Peter and John called to account before the elders and the rulers, the teachers of the law, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, the rest of the high priest's family. These power brokers were annoyed. What's the fuss all about? Well, if you were already in power, you wouldn't want to hear about the power of things being done in the name of Jesus. If you were one of those who rejected and condemned God's Messiah, the message of Peter and John was not good news. If you were in charge of the temple, the central institution that administered God's law, God's justice, and dictated the way of life for God's people, Peter and John's news was not good. The ruling elite were concerned for their status. What they had seen the past few days could overturn all of their power and prestige. Crowds of people flocked to the apostles. Not a good sign for those who wanted power to be centralized in them. A lame man was healed. Not good news in the books of those who made the rules about how religion should work. The preaching brought thousands to follow the way of Christ. Not a success story for the Sanhedrin who tried to put a lid on rumors of Christ's resurrection. The hierarchy who controlled the social and economic and political power lined up against Peter and John. Their position was in jeopardy by all this talk of Jesus' resurrection. See, resurrection challenged the status quo. Existing power structures were threatened. N.T. Wright notes, Resurrection, you see, is the belief which declares that the living God is going to put everything right once and for all is going to restore all things, to turn the world the right way up at last. See, if God can raise the dead, 
If God can heal, if God can call all kinds of people to himself, then God might do just about anything. That's a scary thought for people who want to be in control. Peter and John represented a threat to their power, to the control of all the religious establishment. Because God's way were at, were at odds with the ways of human power. Reminded of the story that's told about St. Thomas Aquinas and Pope Innocent IV. Aquinas went to visit the Pope in Rome and together they walked around viewing all the glories of the Vatican. Religious power and authority were in evidence. As they stood on a balcony overseeing the splendor, the Pope said to Thomas, See, young man, the church is not what it was in the times when it used to say, Silver and gold have I none. Holy Father, that's very true indeed, replied St. Thomas. But neither do we say, in the name of Jesus, rise, take up your bed and walk. If we're obsessed with our power and glory, we can lose sight of God's actions. Religion can dull our senses. We can grow so accustomed to our religious ways that we lose the ability to see God's astonishing ways. And instead of spreading the good news, we just might stand in the way. Remarkably, God wants to use us for his purposes God takes ordinary people, even resistant people, and calls them into his service. Ordinary people filled with the Holy Spirit are God's way of astonishing the world. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled or ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Notice, Acts 4 is not about ability. They realized they were unschooled. Peter and John were fishermen. They hadn't gone to Torah school. They weren't masters of the Midrash. They didn't attend Sunday school, never went to a Christian school, no high school catechism classes. Actually, the word unschooled comes closest to mean illiterate. We can be sure the temple authorities thought of them as nothing more than illiterate idiots. But they were schooled in the way of Jesus. Their seminary was following Jesus. It's easy for us to fall prey to making Christian faith about what we know. I mean, I know when I went to seminary, knowledge was a major item on the agenda. Peter and John teach us again that with respect to faith, who you know is what matters. Maybe even more than what you know. Peter and John's unique education is this. These men had been with Jesus. They were formed in the spirit of Jesus. Their relationship with Jesus made all the difference in their lives. And notice Acts 4 is not at all about status. They realized they were ordinary. Peter and John weren't in the category of priest or rabbi Peter and John were not people with status roles. They weren't part of the temple elite. They were everyday people. They were commoners. They weren't reverence or pastors. They were what we might call lay people. 
They were unschooled, ordinary men. They didn't study in classrooms. They didn't learn from a book. Peter and John had first-hand experience. They had been with Jesus. Night and day, they learned at his right hand. They saw him pray and learned about prayer from him. They discovered how he read and understood the scriptures. And they heard him mind the depths of a passage and the way it affected his life. The time Peter and John spent with Jesus is what prepared them to speak the words that cut to the heart, that brought truth to people who longed to hear it. Some of you are more than familiar with Peter's story. Peter wasn't one to bridle his tongue, quick to speak up. At times, he blurted out just the right answer, like when he declared with absolute certainty that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. But at other times, he stuck his foot in his mouth because what little learning he had got in the way, like telling Jesus that Messiahs don't suffer and die. But Peter learned the hardest lesson of all when he boasted that he would never, ever leave Jesus' side. And then he went on to deny Jesus three times before he abandoned him completely to his death. Little did Peter realize that Jesus would use this school of denial and abandonment to help him, Peter, stand up to the ruling elite. The most powerful tool in Peter's toolbox was that he had been with Jesus. And with Jesus, he discovered the power of God's grace. With Jesus, Peter discovered that forgiveness was part of his calling and restoration. God uses ordinary people for his purposes. Ordinary people like us. God never leaves you ordinary. God takes the broken, the bent, the bruised, and equips them by his Holy Spirit. God uses people like Peter, ordinary, everyday, fallen but forgiven people, so that God's purposes are fulfilled. God radically changed Peter and John through resurrection power, transformed them from unschooled, ordinary people by God's Spirit to become bold and courageous people for Jesus. Peter was once that cowardly, timid disciple who couldn't even admit that he was a follower of Jesus, that he knew Jesus. And now, here he is, boldly declaring the truth about Jesus. The Holy Spirit unleashed the power of Jesus in Peter and John and made them wholly, wholly dedicated to Jesus. In her book, Searching for Shalom, Anne Weems has a poem that speaks about how we are God's holy people. Here we are, she writes, you and I called to be God's holy people. You say you're not the holy type, but I'm not talking about holier than thou. I'm not talking about religious ritual. And the last thing I mean is self-righteousness. Jesus chastised the self-righteous, the ones who spent their days doing religious things, the ones who spent so much time in religious ritual, they didn't have time for tenderheartedness. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about paying attention to the things Jesus taught people, ordinary people, people like you, people like me. Look at the disciples, ordinary people called to follow, called to be God's holy people, called to live in this world with tender hearts. Here we are, 
ordinary people called to be holy people of God. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, see and hear God's holiness in your life. We are God's ordinary people. God uses us for his purposes. Ordinary people, everyday people called to be God's holy people. Because God wants the world to see Jesus. Jesus is the linchpin of salvation. Is the exclusive, the one and only Savior of the world. Salvation is found in no one else, says Peter. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Peter and John are called on the carpet to answer how this lame man was healed. By what name, they're asked. And then that's when Peter gets into hot water. First, he he makes it very clear that this confrontation is not about a healing. I mean, who wouldn't want a lame man to be up and walking? But it's the next thing he says that gets their dander up. They called Peter and John on the carpet because they figured they were demon-possessed. After all, when Jesus healed, he was accused of being in league with the devil. But Peter, filled with the Spirit of Jesus, announces the name that they're looking. That the name that is The name that brought this man healing is right in front of their faces. That the all-important name is Jesus. The Messiah. The one they crucified. And then Peter does a curious thing. He quotes from Psalm 118. He points to Jesus as the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. This is the most quoted psalm verse in the New Testament. This tiny, obscure verse speaks to a central fact of salvation. See, Peter sends them this subversive script. God's salvation wasn't going to be found in soaring rhetoric or in demonstrations of world-class power. God's way is to lift up the least likely. God's Savior is found in Psalm 118, verse 22. See, when builders were building a wall or a house, they would regularly reject the stones that had odd angles. The odd shapes simply wouldn't fit a straight wall. But then often they would find that this odd stone, the one that they had rejected, is just they needed to be used as the capstone at the top of the building. Early Christians expected that God would build a new temple. They expected that the present temple would become redundant. And Peter is building on this expectation. And he uses Psalm 118, the stone that was rejected has become the capstone, to point to Jesus. Jesus would be the critical ingredient of this new temple. Here's the picture. Remember, the resurrection is a sign that God's turning the world right way up. And God's doing this through the powerful name of Jesus. And all this means that the present temple will be replaced with a new building, a new organization, actually, which is based on Jesus himself. This threatens the chief priests because their power is based on this present temple. They can't stand the idea that they're going to lose their power to Jesus, the one who they had left for dead. But the temple authorities could no more hold back the spirit-powered Peter and John than you can hold back the ocean with your hands. Peter's telling them, their day is gone, and now is the day of Jesus. 
The old temple and its organization is not going to save them. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Of course, there's a problem for us here, too. No other name? See, Jesus isn't ours to use for our own agendas. That's the kind of arrogant silliness that Peter and John want nothing to do with. If we really want to come to grips with the only hope any of us have, we must deal with Jesus. We can't protect our cherished temples or traditions. We must acknowledge the absolute exclusivity of Jesus Christ. There's no salvation apart from Jesus' cross and resurrection. It's the foundation of saving faith. Theologian Robert Weber once told about a plain conversation that he had. A man noticed that Weber was reading a Christian book. He says, are you a religious man? Weber said he was. Well, I am too, replied the man. And then they struck up a conversation about religion. In the middle of their conversation, Weber asked the man if he could give a one-liner that captured the essence of his faith. The man replied, we're all part of the problem and we're all part of the solution. Weber expressed appreciation for the man's perspective and they continued to explore what it meant. Then after a while, Weber asked the man if he would like to hear his one-liner about the Christian faith. And the man replied he would. Weber said, We're all part of the problem, but there is only one man who is the solution, and his name is Jesus. Our lives will not be transformed apart from Jesus. You cannot find wholeness. You cannot find any security for your future apart from Jesus. Like that capstone of Psalm 118, Jesus holds our lives together. There's no power for life in following human rules. It's too easy for our customs and traditions like those of the high priest to become our idols. There's no power for life in holding fast to our religious rituals. They'll always be a poor substitute for the radical newness Jesus' resurrection brings. In our pluralistic culture that sees all religions as equal, it can't offer us security in a world where typhoons destroy or landmines claim lives or aneurysms suddenly incapacitate brains. Now here's the power of God's Spirit unleashed in our world. Salvation is in no other name. Salvation, the word used here means to save and that same word means to heal. Salvation brings wholeness. A sense of security, a sense of hope, a sense of meaning, a sense of belonging. To be saved is to be made whole. To become the person God intended you to be. Peter sums it all up. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Many different opinions about what the the church should be like. We don't all agree. Different expectations for pastors and different expectations for people. We want the church to be a certain way with certain music, certain kinds of fellowship, certain programs for our kids and students, even for ourselves. But I can tell you this. Any hope for our future, any power for our life 
will never be found in a structure or a practice or a program. The bottom line, better yet, the capstone for the future of Emmanuel Church starts right here. Jesus holds our lives together. God takes ordinary people, people like you and me, and he unleashes his power through us to be his holy people to the world. And our proof of our holiness is not our association with this church. Others will know we're holy because we've been with Jesus. There is no other name by which we can be saved. There's no other name by which we can become whole people. The only one who can make your life whole is Jesus. By His Spirit, God's power is unleashed in your life. Let's pray together. Lord God, give us that desire to be with Jesus. Keep us hungry, yearning, wanting to be connected to Jesus, to spend time with him, to take quiet moments in our lives and discover in his life what you want for us. Help us to put aside the easy answers, perhaps, that we've often pursued, the road answers, the stuff that's only been about our knowledge. Use us, your just ordinary people. Use us for your purposes through your spirit for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray. Amen.